Well, we um, come to a position here in 1 Peter 2 where we are engaging in two very different major themes at the same time. That doesn't bother me. It just means I have a lot to talk about in a short amount of period of time because I have to address two different themes. We talk about our relationships, and that's what we have been focusing in on since the B, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, 11, sorry, uh, verse 11, we've been seeing the transition to our relationships, which is one of the three major themes of First Peter. Uh, we see it, we have seen it kind of start to move towards one of his other major themes, which is the Christian and suffering, and understanding that, that process of what is entailed in suffering. We have seen him reference it uh, now several times. We haven't really addressed it but now we are going to have to because it really becomes central to one of the relationships in the reader's lives. And I say in the reader's lives because it's not really a relationship that you share with the readers of 1 Peter, the original readers. Uh, and as in verse 18, it says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. We're going to stop right there. We're going to be looking more in the next couple of weeks on our relationship with Christ as described by Peter at the end of this chapter. Uh, we're going to see this uh, not be the only place that we're going to talk about both relationships and suffering. And it's going to come up again at the end of chapter 3. It's going to come up again in chapter 4. It's a major theme, so you would anticipate to take it a major portion of, of Peter. And in fact, it does. So we're going to be revisiting that. We will be just touching on a few of the things along the way so you can see the cohesiveness of Peter's argument, that, that it's not fractured, but rather... He is inserting this major theme along the way, and he's really done that very subtly in the, in the doctrinal part as well when he talked about that Jesus was the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And because they rejected him, they will also likely reject you. And Jesus himself, Christ himself said that, didn't he? He warned us of that. And so uh, it's not that this is new, it's just that now it has come to a, a forthright, it, it's spoken very clearly here, uh, and, and we are introduced to the ideas that he's going to develop further uh, later on in the book. And so we want to deal with a relationship that we don't really have. Now most preachers, when they get to this passage about servants and their masters, we really usually will talk about you and your employers, Right, you as employees and them as employers, that that's the relationship that they will insert here in this passage. But that's really not very accurate. Uh, for one thing, you have liberty to choose your employer. Slaves didn't have that liberty. Once you were brought into that servitude, uh, and that, that wasn't um, forced always. Um, circumstances sometimes forced it. Uh, some slavery in the Roman Empire was forced, uh, but a lot of it was not. And in Judaism particularly, even back in Israel's day, most slavery, most servants, were one in which they sold themselves 
to pay off the debts of sometimes their family members, wasn't even their own. And we've seen that throughout society of, of servitude that is driven by financial concerns. And that isn't just in Jewish or Roman society. It's really been uh, in societies for a long, long time uh, and really has only been somewhat uh, frowned upon in these modern era. Uh, it wasn't so very long ago that people still would sell themselves or even one or more of their children into servitude to pay off debt. Once the debt was paid off, you were then free to choose what you would do then. And, and of course, the concept of a bond servant is someone who says, well, I've been, I have a good master, My debt, the debt that I'm here for is paid off, but I have a good life here, I enjoy my work, and I just choose to stay. And that individual becomes a bond servant, and they would pierce the ear, and they would wear an a earring that would demonstrate, would tell everybody, I am a bond servant. And that's what earrings were for, was to designate slaves. That's why women should wear earrings, because there are, no. <laughs> You're thinking about that. What? Did he just say that? And men don't, usually. So whenever I come to people and they pierce ears, and I say, whose slave are you now? Uh, did, did you make that choice to, to serve them the rest of your days? Because that's the history of that. So they would put that piercing in there to identify themselves as a servant. So really this passage of verse 18 really doesn't have a direct relationship to you. Um, we can make it apply to you and your employer, I guess, with some concessions along the way. But most of you, if your employer starts beating you, would probably leave after you sued them. And, right? And so you'd, you'd probably leave. Uh, but that wasn't an option for the believers in this time period. Uh, they were bound to that. They were bound legally. And yes, the masters had the legal right to beat you if you did wrong. And, or in, the, in their eyes, you weren't doing well enough. And that's what Peter wants to address here, is what happens uh, when you get maltreated by the world. And the assumption here is that the master they're talking about is an unbeliever. That you're a Christian and in a servitude. Now, were there no Christian masters? Well, there certainly were. And Paul references and talks about them. We have other passages that we certainly have people of influence and power that would have had servants that came to know Christ. We have that recorded for us in, in the book of Acts. Cornelius is perhaps the prime example that Peter went to himself. And it would, when it says Cornelius and his whole household gathered to hear the word of God, to respond to the word of God, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is a, a reference not only to his family members, but to his servants and to his uh, chain of command, whoever his, his other commanders were that would be under his authority, would all have been in that place. And to hear all of that, to respond to the gospel. Uh, Lydia is another one that said her whole household, and again, the likelihood is because she was a businesswoman, had... Uh, servants as well, and certainly had the capacity to care for Paul and his entourage there in Philippi. And so servanthood and slavery wasn't strange to them. It wasn't odd, and it was part of the economy of Rome. In fact, it is said that uh, up to a third of all people who lived in the Roman Empire were slaves. 
And largely Christianity was very explosive in that third of that population, in those ranks. So many people in the church were slaves. But not in the sense that you think of slavery. Uh, it's not that they didn't have any liberty to go about their business and to do it. They had great liberty. Um, for example, if you want to pick on who were slaves in the Roman Empire that Peter is talking to here, um, all physicians would have been slaves of someone. Uh, physicians weren't wealthy people, they were slaves. You took a slave, you trained them, and they were your physician of your household. All teachers were slaves. And so there was no occupation called teacher that was out there um, in the Roman Empire. So if you're a wealthy family, you would have one of your slaves uh, educated to be educating your children and the rest of your household. And so these kinds of occupations um, were were under the category of servants. And so when we talk about a third of the population, how can a third of them be working? It's like we think of American slavery in the cotton fields picking cotton. Uh, but that wasn't the case. They were much broader and extensive, including sometimes lawyers, things that we think of as professionals, they would have thought of as a slave class. So Peter here is talking to a, a pretty significant part of the church population about your relationships with your masters. Some masters are good, Peter says. Some of them were gentle. Some of them were, were fair. And, and that's wonderful. So you want to be submissive to your master with all fear, uh, not only to the good and gentle, there's good ones, and then there was harsh ones. He doesn't call them bad. He says they're harsh. Um, they're, they're violent. They are, they are, you can never satisfy them. You can never make them happy. Uh, they were just going to maltreat all their servants, and there were masters like that. And not only in Roman culture, but in Israelite culture. And that's why in the law there was a way to uh, escape from a master, get to a city of refuge, because he was maltreating you. And that was one of the things that was addressed. We have a book in the New Testament that is completely dealing with a runaway slave. Uh, called Onesimus, and that's the book of Philemon. So we have Paul, here's how I'm going to talk to a Christian master about his now Christian slave and that had run away, and there were heavy repercussions for that. And so we're not going to look at this relationship. I'm not going to try to translate this into your relationship with your employer uh, because I don't know that it fits very well. We certainly understand that we have authorities in our life, in the economic realm, if you want to make that statement, that we have to be uh, submissive to. And that it is commended, not, by men, not only by men, but by God. And we endure grief and suffer wrongfully. We endure that. But I want to take this out of just the employment sector and bring it into our whole life. Because that is the principle that Peter wants to, to share with us. And he's going to develop it much more in chapter 3, again in chapter 4, of what does this mean to allow ourselves to be maltreated by the world. Now, we don't think that that should ever happen. And we have lawyers that are standing in line waiting to take our case to sue the pants off of anybody who maltreats us in our view. And... 
we're going to say, well, we have all these rights. And again, I want you to reference last week, the difference between rights and, uh, and versus laws, and, and that there are very few God-given rights that you can claim. The authority of the law can give you certain uh, legal claims, uh, and we pursue those for what we believe to be justice. Uh, but there, is a times, there are times and places where that is just not fair. That is, the application of law and of your legal position isn't going to be administrated fairly. We might say, well, that's what government is for, and certainly it is perhaps in the top five. Not, I don't know that it's in the top three, but it's certainly in the top five uh, purposes of government. And so we find that, that it should want its citizenry to be treated fairly. But we also recognize that government with authority can view one section, one portion, uh, one class of its society uh, and distinguish them and treat them differently than others. And this has been throughout all the history of man. And God declares that they have the right to do that as the reigning class. That they have the right to say, you are being set aside. Um, and so when we come to uh, these examples in the scripture that we've used already with regard to men and government in the last few weeks, we recognize that they had the authority to segregate out a class of people and enslave them. And those, that class of people was, were stuck in that until they cried out to God and God relieved them of that suffering in a supernatural way. And, of course, we're referring to the Exodus primarily, but even in the book of Esther, and under the Persians, and the issues that were going on there. And so we find that they were willing to submit to the authority, and even Moses waits until Pharaoh gives him permission to take the Israelites out of Egypt. All right? They didn't just fight against Pharaoh. They didn't raise a insurrection against Pharaoh. They served Pharaoh even when it got worse. Remember, before they got freedom, it got worse. Pharaoh says, if you've got all this time to be talking this kind of talk and wanting to go out in the wilderness, I'm going to double your work. But I'm not going to lower your output. So you still have to perform the same amount of bricks, but you're going to have to go gather your own straws double in addition to everything else. You're going to have to double your pace of work. Well, that, and of course, the children of Israel cry out and says, oh, how can this be a benefit? How can this help us? Well, it helps because that's the process that God used to break Pharaoh down. But notice that it got darker before it got bright for Israel. They suffered. But Pharaoh had the right to do that. And he didn't, wasn't maltreated by God at all because of doing that, really, it was the cry of the people of Israel saying, relieve, relieve us from this suffering because it became uh, bad. It became harsh. And that harshness is something we cry out to God for even as we endure it in our daily life. And this is what Israel's doing. They were enduring the hardship of slavery 
even while they were crying out to God. And it was not a slave revolt that happened in Egypt. It was God intervening for his people until the authority that was in their life said, get out of my country. And God can do those kinds of things. I know you don't believe that, or we would live differently, but uh, he does that. When we get into Israel, and we talked about the problems of justice in the land, that one of the elements that God says, this is it, I'm fed up, you're going into captivity, I am destroying you as a people, both the, first to Israel and to Judah, one of the primary issues was the matter of there is no justice in the land. And when God looks around and sees no justice, he intervenes. It is not for the people to insurrect against that, it is for God to intervene and the people simply cry out to God about the injustices and says God hears it. Now let's fast forward into the end times. What do we expect to happen at the end times? Well, right before God judges, which is what the end times is really all about in terms of the world, right before God judges, what should you anticipate the world being like? Well, the Bible tells you what it's going to be like. It's going to be a horrible time of injustice. It's going to be a lot of suffering going on. There, men are going to hate you more than ever. They're going to want to kill you. They're going to hunt you down. Uh, they're going to set you apart and distinguish you and say, these are our enemies. These, this group of people called Christians, they are the enemies, not only of, of we who are in authority, but they are the enemies of society at large. This is what we should be expecting, and this is why this portion of Scripture and uh, of Peter is so valuable to us during this period of time. It's because it instructs us how do we engage with a world that has turned its face against us. And it said these people aren't the salt of the earth. They aren't the good of our country. They are the enemy of political correctness. They are the enemy of all that we're trying to do. And we're going to mistreat them. We're going to be harsh toward them, even to the point of beating them. Now, there's different ways of being. Physical assault is certainly, and battery is certainly one aspect of it, but there's also that beating down uh, either uh, in other areas that we call liberties, and we see that, that this, this beatdown of these people, that they are not relevant, that they are, that they are to be isolated and they are to be ignored. And, to, and if we give them any attention, it's going to be negative. This is that harsh treatment. Peter says, listen, it's going to be commendable to God for you to endure that. But not for doing bad things. So don't go out there and rebel against your country and take up arms and start shooting at soldiers and police. Um, that's not what God calls you to do in response. If we believe that we are being maltreated and there's injustice in our land, we should do what God's people have always done, that is cry out to the Lord with our complaint. And if you need some help with that, I would recommend several of the Psalms. <laughs> there's lots of those. About a third of them you could read as a Psalms of Lament and crying out to God and, and with all of the issues and the injustices around you and the enemies that are against you without a cause. And God will hear that prayer. It might be a little while before he answers it. Remember, God heard the prayers of Israel for quite a while and then he had to get a Moses ready. <laughs> I mean, Moses was, that was 40 years, right? I mean, he was thrown in the river 
because his mom obeyed Pharaoh and threw her son in the river. Just happened to be in a boat that she threw in the river, but she did throw him in the river, just in a boat. So she did obey, technically, Pharaoh. God delivered that little guy and took 40 years. 40 years, God says, I'm going to take to answer the prayers of my people for justice. So don't think that that prayer is going to be answered next week, necessarily, but God does hear it. And in fact, in Revelation chapter, oh, I think it's 8, maybe the end of 7, we find the prayers of God's people are one of the things that moves God to judgment. The prayers of God's people, the prayers of how long, O oh Lord, till you judge the evil of what these people have done to us, the harshness. God says, well, now those prayers are going to be heard and answered. And then come the trumpet judgments, and then the thunder judgments, and then the bowl judgments, and then Armageddon. And wham, 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 God is storing up his wrath, is the biblical term for that. But it requires us to respond by prayer, to pour out our complaint to God, even while we endure the grief, endure suffering, endure being wrongly treated, even being beaten. Now, we have been spoiled haven't we? Because we, in our day and age, in our society here, um, first of all, we don't believe that government has the right to do this to us. Uh, we, we have these concepts of personal liberty and freedom as a fundamental right, which the Bible doesn't give us. Uh, we find all of these things there that, that we have enjoyed, and now we find, can they really be taken away easily? And they have been and are being taken away. And we can complain and cry out and, and invoke a bunch of lawsuits. And all of it is, is frivolous. That's frivolous activity because it is ineffectual. Because once there's no justice in the land, none of those legal means will work. We have seen evidence of that in the last six months. When the Supreme Court of our United States refuses to take a case of national importance, they didn't vote against it. They refused to even listen to it of critical national importance. They simply says, we're not going to do our job. That's injustice, period. And two of them said so, the two that didn't agree with the others. This is why we exist. How can we ignore this? That's injustice. So you see how once there's injustice land, there is no recourse for you of this world. And finally, now that we begin to realize we have an unjust system, and it doesn't matter how I vote, it doesn't matter who I sue, it doesn't matter what court I go to, I'm not going to get justice. It doesn't matter if I call the police. It doesn't matter if I call. I, there's no justice in the land. And so we have people walking all over Albuquerque who have committed heinous crimes and have liberty to commit more because there's no justice in our land. So what is our recourse? Well, how do we endure? Well, the biblical way is that we keep 
submitting to authorities. It says, be submissive to your masters. And they are your masters. If they can tell you what to do, if they can tell you what to wear, if they can tell you where you can go and where you can't go, they are your masters. Okay? Just throwing that out at you. So I'm going to endure that. Does that mean I'm going to do nothing? No. What I'm going to do is I'm going to lay my complaint out to God. There's no justice in our land. Lord, judge these who maltreat us wrongfully. You do it. And trust me, God is a lot better at it than you and I. He's a lot better than our judicial system. He's a lot better than our political system. He's just better at it. Let's pour our lament before God. There is our help. That's where our help comes from. And so we are going to engage in wrong, being treated wrongfully. The question is, why are we being treated wrongfully? Is it because we are rebellious and, and nasty people? They're waving guns around and threatening? Or because if that's the case, then you are not being treated wrongfully. You deserve to be maltreated. You deserve to get beaten. You deserve to be shot. You deserve to be imprisoned. You deserve those things. That's expected. In a civilized society, that is people we, you should be. And so Peter says, if you've been beaten for your faults and you take that patiently, big deal, you deserved it. You say, oh, I'm in prison because, well, you walked around waving a gun, threatening people. You belong in prison. I own guns. I don't run around and threaten people with them. And yes, in our society, just carrying one sometimes is enough of a threat. If, you go, if I walk around with an AK-47 and walk through the downtown, they're going to be a little nervous. They're going to view it as a threat. I don't do that. I don't own an AK-47 either. I don't even own an AR-15. So I, 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 know, but, so I can take my pellet gun. I don't know if anyone would be bothered by that or not. Uh, my rabbits are bothered by that because they know what that means. Somebody's eating me. Um, but we're not going to do that. If you're going to be beaten for faults, and you don't, don't expect God to commend you. Oh, what a wonderful person. But if you are beaten for doing what's right, and I, that, that's a word we defined last week, not your rights, falsely so-called in American consciousness in our documents, but for doing what is morally good and godly and biblical, and then you get beaten on. Does it say, then you get to take your case to Caesar? Yeah, take your case to the magistrates. Yeah, take your case to the court system. Remember, there is no justice. What does it say to do? Verse 20, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Wow. If you take it and suffer and endure it. That's what God looks at and he says, I approve of that. You patiently, and that is that I endure, I patiently, I'm going to be treat, maltreated and I'm going to say that this is terrible, but I'm crying out to God. I'll let God punish them. And, or perhaps by taking it patiently and being patient, God might do some miraculous things in the very people who are beating on me. 
Then it's not only commendable before God, but people look at that and say, you know, that wasn't fair, but you took it. And you didn't try to get even. You didn't try to fight back. You didn't react like people react. You reacted like Jesus reacts. You took it. You suffered patiently. Not screaming and yelling and kicking, patiently. You might even smile a little bit. We have lots of examples of this in the apostolic period of the book of Acts. In fact, we have Peter himself, who is, he's, not, he's not preaching from <laughs> no experience, right? He was called into the Senate, stop preaching in this name of Jesus, you're going to convert the whole world. And he says, well, should we listen to you or should we listen to God? You're talking to the Sanhedrin, who claim to be servants of God. Well, you beat them up, throw them out of here, and remind them not to preach anymore. And they literally got beaten on. Should allow 39 lashes, can't do it 40. And it says they left there rejoicing that they were worthy of suffering for his name's sake. That's called enduring it patiently. Peter knows what he's talking about. He has done it himself. And so we have this privileged opportunity when the world turns in on us and instead of saying that you are the, the model citizen, said you are the enemy of civilization, then we begin to show who we are. How you react to that shows who you are. And that's going to be a theme, major theme, theme throughout Peter that we're introduced here. Listen, in this one relationship of this guy who has authority to tell you where to go and what to do um, that, and where to live and everything, and he starts beating on you for you doing your job, uh, you lament to God, you just take it. You take it patiently. God will listen. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that we lament to God and rebel against authority. And then we wonder why God doesn't answer our prayer. Right? See, we want to do both of these things. We want to lament to God and pick up our whatever to rebel and to against authority. Well, your prayers to God become ineffectual because you are not doing the things that God commends you for. And so he says the rebellious that you are not submitting to authority. And he says, I'm, you don't need my help, you got your gun. You don't need my help, you got your lawyer. You don't need my help, you got your protest march. You don't need my help. You're helping yourself. It is when Israel and when the apostles took the beatings, took it, took the slavery, accepted it, and then cried out to God and kept obeying the authorities. And Israel obeyed the authorities right up, and including when Pharaoh says, get out of my land. They obeyed, even while they lamented. And the being, the submitting to authority, and we're going to talk about civil disobedience here in a little bit, um, 
the, the submitting to authority, remember, it is not always 100% obeying authority. It's recognizing authority, but also recognizing that if, if, I, if they make an unjust law that tells me to not pray to the God, and I pray to God, then I'm willing to be fed to the lions without complaint because I mean them no harm. I'm doing no harm to my government. I'm not, I'm, I want them and any authority, my boss, uh, my, whoever the masters of your life are, I'm doing them no harm. But I have to obey God. And if the law says if I obey God, you're going to punish me, I'll take the punishment. Okay, that's civil disobedience. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about rebellion. When rebellion is there, you are not honoring God, you are not honoring his authority, and he will not hear your prayer lament. You cannot have them together. And so it is when we submit to the authority that now we are commendable before God and then our prayers of lament can come before him with great effect. You see how these are companions with each other. You cannot do both, be an insurrectionist and pray your prayer lament and expect God to intervene. You have chosen to intervene in man's ways and not in God's ways. You've usurped that role of holding authority accountable. But you don't have the authority to do that. God established those authorities, therefore they are accountable to him, not to you and not to me. And not to the internet. Okay? And so we have, I'm going to take it patiently, be commended to God, and now my prayers of lament are effectual. Lord, don't forget what they've done to us. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. Now, there's another sidebar here of why it's so important that you take it patiently. And that is because, as I just mentioned earlier, we have a different goal. Our goal is not to get what's just. Our goal really isn't to get what's just, because what's just is that all men go to hell. All men go to lake of fire forever and ever. That's justice, because we're all sinners. We have a different goal. We have a goal of mercy and grace. Our objective is to get these who are maltreating us, in this case, their masters, to see how patiently you take abuse and then go, well, it's, it's not fair that I did that to them, but they took it and they didn't fight back and they didn't curse me and they didn't, they, they, they didn't, they're still serving me and they're still putting all their energy into it. They're not holding back. They're, they're still trying to do their very best. And that brings an opportunity for a testimony. And you don't think people will take note of that? First of all, people do in their conscience knows what is right and just and fair. They really do. Even while they hate you, they know if they've maltreated you. And they're watching your reaction. And your reaction gives an opportunity for the gospel. I'm going to take it patiently because I'm praying for your 
deliverance? Are you praying for your enemies? Not only that God don't forget that they've done to us, but also God forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Are we praying that kind of prayer? Right alongside that psalm of lament, are we also praying for the souls of those in authority that are beating us down? Now we understand, well, that's why it's so important that I take it patiently because they have to see that I'm willing to suffer for what I believe in and for their benefit, not just, it's no benefit for me. I just keep getting beat and beat and beat. It's no benefit to me. I am suffering this as a benefit to you. And this is why it comes back to Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about next week our relationship with him is because now we have this as our model. Jesus Christ endured the cross, despised its shame, and is set down the right hand of the Father because of the joy that was set before him. What is that joy that was set before him? It was salvation of men. Why do we endure suffering? Isn't it just because we love pain? And isn't it because I'm going to get a greater reward if I get there? If I can endure, suffer through this, then I can get a reward in heaven. No, it's not selfish at all. There's zero selfishness. There's zero benefit for you in suffering. And that's what Peter is saying. If you want to be commended before God, you endure the suffering, but really you're doing it not for your own interest, but for the interest of the very people who are causing your suffering. You want to be a testimony to them. Not laughing in their face. That's not what we're talking about. Not this, you didn't hurt me. That, not that kind of thing. But actually, just, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to keep serving you. I'm going to keep doing what is right and good. I'm going to be the Daniel and yell out, O king, live forever. I meant you no harm. I'm not your enemy. You threw me into the lions, and I don't hold it against you. <laughs> I'm still going to serve you. I'm still going to be your, your number one fan. I'm the guy you can go to. You bank on it. And we, we need to have that attitude that we may reach them. Think of what incredible impact Daniel had on men like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, even reaching into Cyrus. And we, we see this impact he had on these men and these kingdoms and these nations because he was willing to endure suffering. And it got everyone's attention. But these guys stood up for stuff and they were willing to pay the price for standing up for stuff and they did it willingly, without complaint. They did it willingly, uh, without uh, opposition. They didn't fight you. They said, this is what you want to need to do. This is what you need to do. I'm trusting in God. And here we go. Let's go see what these kitties do to me. And they just purred. Well, we would have that testimony. But we don't want to get to that point, do we? Because we don't think we should have to suffer unjustly. But that is going to become more and more the norm in these days. It already is becoming the norm. It is going to become more and more the norm. And when I see the Christian community scratching for its life through the judicial system and through other systems, I, I go, what are you doing? Just take it. Just take it. Patiently take it. 
And I said, well, that's not right. Exactly. <laughs> it's when you are abused for doing good that you are now commended to God. Your psalms of, a, of lament are heard before God. Your, your prayers of justice are heard before God. And the opportunity, the light of the gospel is shined in front of those that are abusing you. But it all is hinged upon whether you are willing to take suffering patiently. Now, today is Pentecost. What does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that in, after, during our dinner. But I want to just share with you that the Spirit of God is a necessary component in enduring suffering. And it was by Christ himself. I want you to jump forward just, just in First Peter. It doesn't take long to find these verses. Um, I could go into Acts, and I might still. First uh, Peter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine law suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And we're going to stop right there. But we find that this work of the Holy Spirit in this process of enduring, that Jesus Christ on the cross, that while the Father turned his back on him, the Spirit of God did not leave him. Isn't that interesting? He, gave, he surrendered his spirit and, and, and as he gave up the ghost or he gave up the spirit as he died. But yet we find that the Holy Spirit, it says, made him alive. And even before that, it was by the Holy Spirit in verse 19 that he went and preached to spirits in prison. It is by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that he endured all of that, died, and when he descended into Hades to take captivity captive, when he descended there, he preached there in, Hades, in the place called Paradise, or Abraham's bosom. He went there. He went there by the Spirit. Because Jesus' ministry entirely, as soon as he became man, was by the Spirit. It was the Spirit power that enabled him to do all these things, the miracles. And that's why he says, you're going to do as many miracles as I do because the same Spirit that dwells me is going to dwell you. Well, when did that happen? Pentecost, that we celebrate today. is when we receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to be talking about that. And so we have this Spirit of God. One of the terms for him in regard to our relationship with this suffering is that he is our comforter. All right, that's such a wonderful word, isn't it? Comforter. But what does it mean if you need a comforter? Oh, wait a minute. If I need a comforter, it means I have grief to be comforted from. Right? We call him a comforter, and, he, and we envision that he's coming alongside of us and giving us slaps on the back as we perform great things for God. And we forget that the number one definition of a comforter is to come and carry you when you are ready to quit. To carry you when you are hurting to cry with you and weep with you as you are grieving. That that is the primary understanding of the term comforter. It means that you have been suffering. And you have one to come alongside of you. And Jesus Christ had the Holy Spirit ministering to him. 
Even on the cross, even in the grave, Jesus Christ had the Spirit of God ministering to him by which he could endure. We similarly share that wonderful gift that we celebrate on this Lord's Day because it was a Lord's Day that the Spirit came because Pentecost always falls on the first day of the week. Always. By definition, it must fall on the first day of the week for all of Israel. So if you go to Israel today, today is Pentecost there. It's a feast of Pentecost. We're going to have our feast of Pentecost. I'm pretty sure they're not serving ham at their feast of Pentecost, but we are. um, But we're having the feast of Pentecost because of God giving us the Spirit of God by which we can endure. Even as Christ had by his Spirit could endure. The Spirit of God. And so he comforts us. We don't find comfort in lawsuits being won. We don't find comfort in in laws being passed. We don't find comfort in in these concepts of of justice on an earthly scale. We find our comfort in Holy Spirit. He is our comforter. And when we go go to God in prayer, it is he who intercedes and engages with our spirit. And so we want to be able to endure suffering patiently, to endure the grief and the maltreatment and all of that, and to do it um, patiently and just willingly to take it. I just take it. I'm just going to take it. Well, it's not about a determined will. Certainly your will is involved, but it's about a submitted will to Holy Spirit. That if we are walking in the Spirit... We are not going to be in the flesh. You see, getting even is a fleshly concept. Getting back at people, getting revenge is, a, is of the flesh. And the Bible says, I'm going, to, I'm going to wait on God to do just judgment upon those who haven't bowed the knee to him in this world. But I'm going to seek comfort. And that comfort is in the Holy Spirit. He is the comforter. That's how Jesus described him in John. When the comforter comes, he's your comforter. He is the one that's going to come and carry you in all this period of grief. And rightly do we take time to celebrate this wonderful gift of God that enabled Jesus to endure, that can enable us to endure all sorts of maltreatment, even to the point of death, just as he did that we can do all of that, and we can even rejoice. We should have expectation of it, and when it comes, we should sit back and relate, well, this is um, God's authority over me. I'm going to keep doing good, and if that gets me beaten, I'll keep doing good. And as they're beating on me, I'm not going to curse them. I'm not going to grind my teeth at them. I'm not going to stare them down. I'm not going to shoot daggers at them. I am going to take it. Am I going to cry? Probably, because it's grief. It's hurting. But I'm going to find my comfort in Holy Spirit. Now, I do have to give a little parenthesis here, because we do have some examples of God's words of his people avoiding suffering. And the biggest example of that, of course, is Paul, 
who finally recognized, by the way, he had already suffered extensively, and he knew he would be suffering more. He arrives at Jerusalem of all times. Guess what day he arrives to worship in Jerusalem? He had taken a vow, that, he, and he'd shaved his head uh, weeks before, and he had taken a vow to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Today. He wanted to be in Jerusalem. It was one of the three highest times that all Israelite men were supposed to try to get to Jerusalem was Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So those are the three biggies. He wanted to get there for that. He couldn't get there for Passover, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He wanted to get there for Pentecost, though he saw that on his calendar that he could make that happen. He took a vow to that effect, shaved his head, which meant that uh, everything he grew on his head, he would sacrifice on Pentecost. So everything he grew from the time he took his vow to Pentecost, he would shave that off and burn it as a burnt offering to God. Interesting, so he was going to be bald again. But he comes there, so he wants to get there for Pentecost, and he meets up with James, and James says, look at all these Jewish people, and they're so committed to the law. And, you know, this is the guy who went around and wrote the book of Galatians, says, you know, we're free from the law. Uh, we're free above the law. And so they give him some bad advice. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he takes some guys. He's going to pay their way because Pentecost was all about giving. Give, 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 give. Pentecost was the day of giving. And they said, listen, not only do you give the sacrifices that you were brought to give, but we want you to pay for these other men and pay for their way too to show that you have not turned your back on Judaism. And Paul obeys them because they're people in authority in Jerusalem. And he says, okay, I'll do what you asked me to do. And he goes in there, and of course, the guys he takes with him are confused with Gentiles that were traveling with him around. And so they thought these two guys were those two guys, and it creates a great big problem in the temple area. But Paul is there on Pentecost. And it's there that they're going to kill him. Now, he's been told all along his journey that when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be suffering. You're going to be imprisoned. In fact, they had people walk up to him in chains and saying, this is what you're going to look like when you get to Jerusalem. So he knew it was coming. Can you prepare for something if you know it's coming? Brethren, you know it's coming. Prepare for it. God told you what the end times are going to be like. That men were going to be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, disobedient to parents, uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good. They're not going to love good. They just want to feel good. They're going to hate you. Prepare for that. Mentally, spiritually, prepare for that. The Bible calls it tribulation, what the world does to Christians. They're going to give you tribulation. They're going to hate you. They're going to arrest you, they're going to beat on you, they're going to kill you, and think they're doing society a favor. So, he arrives there, he takes the bad advice, causes all the confusion, gets grabbed by these people, falsely accused, and he's getting beaten on. And down comes a Roman soldier. <laughs> and to intervene on, in this Problem, And this is in chapter 21 of Acts, if you want to read it all. Verse 
we find that um, they had to extract him. We'll pick it up in verse 31 of Acts 21, if you want to turn there now. As they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions. See, plural centurion. Now, centurion had a hundred men. He took more than one. This was no small affair. Centurions with him and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. Well, that's exactly what they said would happen to him. He was prophesied about that. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing, some another. When he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob of his own people. These are Jewish people. For the multitude of the people followed after him, saying, Away with him. And... He's delivered by these people from being killed because God has a purpose for him yet. But notice we find that it wasn't Paul, it wasn't the Christian community that intervened. James is nowhere on the site. You don't see anyone fighting back. You find the Roman commander coming down and he's going to extract Paul out of here. He thinks he's some African dude, uh, or Egyptian I should say. Well, that's Africa. And uh, finds out that he's none of that. And then he just says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. What are you talking about? I'm not, I'm not from Egypt. I'm not Egyptian. I'm a Jew from Tarsus. And he's allowed to speak to everybody. And, of course, when he gets to the resurrection, he gets to going out to the Gentiles and his testimony. They get all upset. We get to chapter 22. And... Um, verse 23 says, Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, said he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. As they bound him with thongs, uh, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? What did he just do? He invoked a privilege of citizenship to avoid getting scourged <laughs> because there really wasn't a point in it. The centurion didn't understand what was going on. I'm sorry, the commander didn't understand what was going on. He just wanted to, we'll beat the truth out of this guy because um, he. we don't know what he said in Hebrew. And out of ignorance, this commander didn't hate Paul. He didn't hate the Jews. He didn't hate his, what he said. He didn't know what he said. So Paul says, oh, I, I'm not really suffering right now for doing good. I'm suffering because of his ignorance. And I probably don't need to do that. That's not going to be beneficial to my testimony here. Now, had Paul endured beatings by people who hated him? Yes. In Philippi, that very same thing happened, and he got beaten, and he got thrown into prison. And then they went out and says, oh, you can be free. And he says, no, I'm a Roman citizen. You don't set me free without some fanfare. I wasn't, conde I wasn't condemned. You didn't have a trial for me. I have certain rights as a Roman citizen, and... The, all, everyone in Philippi was afraid. <gasps> what have we done? Rome could come in here and clean out every authority over this issue. If this guy pushes this to Caesar, we are all losing our jobs and probably our lives for maltreating a Roman citizen. That's how serious it was. So it's getting ready to happen again, and Paul says, oh, I don't need that because it's not part of my testimony. 
And so he invokes his citizenship. He avoids the beating. They, they're even afraid because they bound him. You're not allowed to put Roman citizens in chains like that. But they had. And that's what was prophesied. He was ready to endure that. He didn't complain about that. He understood that. God said that would happen. And from this point forward, we're going to find Paul engaging in a couple of times where he says, I'm going to claim my rights as a citizen. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. He's going to do that as well. Because he understands that he has an opportunity to keep preaching. And so we have a balance, and I understand that. But Peter, when he looks at this scenario, said, listen, when your relationship with the world, um, let's, let's be more willing to take it than we are to stick it to back to them. Let's change our attitude here. Paul had no interest in, interest in, in injuring anybody but he's like, listen, this isn't really part of suffering for doing good. This is suffering because of your ignorance, and I can avoid that. And then we can have an audience. And he had an audience between, before Felix, before Ephesus, before King Agrippa, and ultimately before Caesar himself. He had all these audiences because of this, and God instructed him in that. And so, yes, I understand that there is a biblical reference point for taking hold of some of the privileges of citizenship, but I would contend with you that that is not what we're going to see happening in our days. In the weeks and months to come, possibly years, we are not going to see that as a privilege that we can invoke because there will not be justice in the land. And we don't anticipate getting it from the courts. We don't anticipate getting it from the court of public opinion on social media. We don't anticipate it anywhere like that. We're prepared for the beatdown which means losing jobs, losing friends, losing family, losing our place in society, maybe even losing our residences, our privileges. You can't come in here. You don't have whatever. The Bible says you can't buy or sell without the mark. You don't have the mark. You can't come in here and buy anything from us. Well, I'm not taking the mark. We're seeing that being talked about right now, aren't we? Of vaccine passports. That you can't go any places, you can't fly, you can't do well, I'm not gonna do that, so that means I'm I'm out. And our government has the right to do that. They are exercising that right in many places. Places of employment have the right to do that. Government's giving it to them because there's no justice. How do we react? Our relationship to them needs to be one, I will take it. I will be patient in it. I will lament to God and I will be a testimony to them. This, I believe, is a biblically balanced approach that I'm not going to issue complaints. I'm not going to issue lawsuits but rather that I'm going to suffer wrongfully, I'm going to deal with that grief, I'm going to find comfort in the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to look for opportunities of ministry in the midst of that and rejoice that I have peace that the world doesn't have because of the Holy Spirit in me. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. The time we can spend in it today, it's been a brief time. And yet, Lord, we... Uh, Pray that it might have a lasting impact on our thinking, on our attitudes, and in how we live our lives. Lord, we thank you so much for your spirit. And as we 
sing and then eat and spend a little more time in your word that we might uh, bring you the glory, honor, and praise we do that. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.